This is Pain Refrain. Well, welcome back, everybody, to Pain Reframed. Jeff and I are very excited to be talking to a friend of mine from Michigan, also from Michigan. I guess all three of us are from Michigan, hey? We are talking with Leonard Van Gelder today, who is a physical therapist, pain educator, and PT clinic owner in downstate Michigan. And he's got a lot of interesting thoughts about something called relational frame theory that we're going to get into, amongst other things. And we'll just kind of see where this conversation takes us today. Leonard, thank you so much for agreeing to spend some time with us. Can you just give us a little background on who you are and what you do with your time? Sure. Thanks, Liz. I'm a physical therapist, athletic trainer, and I also went through some of the coursework from formerly ISPI EIM, the TPS coursework, as well as what was formerly the CSMT. So a little background there. Previous background, strength and conditioning, performance training, things like that. And running currently my own clinic, uh, Dynamic Movement and Recovery, and then the education company, Dynamic Principles. We're based out of Grand Rapids, Michigan. So I think you pretty much kind of covered everything in overview, and there's my my details. (laughs) Yeah, so you spend time in the clinic with patients, and you also spend time educating, but you're really into reading research and trying to further your understanding of human beings in general. And I reached out to you about this conversation because of your interest the last few months in relational frame theory, which I admit the first time I saw it, I thought, wow, that's really deep. And then I started to get more into it and realized, actually, this is, it's abstract, but it's also very profound. Can you tell us a little bit about RFT? Absolutely. No, I I, uh, found, you know, in this process, all of us who kind of been helping people who've been struggling with pain over time with experience, we all accumulate our successes as well as our, our failures. And you can't help but be curious, how do you improve your successes and decrease your failures? And so as I've gone through this process, and I think all of us have, we've started to realize the psychosocial factors. And well, we haven't started to realize the evidence has been there always, but we've been trying to figure out how do we implement the psychosocial factors into our practice, not just from a recognition, but making use of them and turning, converting our treatment programs into biopsychosocial based programs. And in that journey, there was this inherent kind of thing where you feel like there's something that is underlying the successes and the failures. And as I went through and and started to realize, you know what, I really got to peel back this onion, the old onion analogy, where I got to figure out what is underlying this. And not just try and add another tool of like, you know what, I'm going to do this cognitive behavioral strategy or this acceptance commitment therapy strategy, but try and figure out what it is that makes them different and what it is that draws me to that, that makes me think there's something here. And so as I did sort of the deep delve, in particular with acceptance and commitment therapy, was to really look at the work of Stephen Hayes. Stephen Hayes was the developer psychologist that and researcher that developed Act as well as he was one of the originators of relational frame theory, along with Dermot Barnes Holmes and a number of other engineers over the years. I had to kind of go through this process. I went through some coursework that Stephen Hayes had put out and act intensive and, and kind of learned some of his thinking, some of his thoughts behind how ACT was developed and how RFT came together. And he kept kind of pointing to things like some philosophical viewpoints, as well as relational frame theory. So I kind of knew that there's something important here and started to dig into it myself, trying to dig into RFT or relational frame theory, just kind of in the textbooks that Hayes had presented and, and the literature that's out there. It, it is very overwhelming 
and it's it's complex. And I was fortunate to get pointed pretty quickly to Nicholas Tornike's Learning RFT book. And I think that was a huge, huge step, I think, for me forward in, in making meaningful understanding of some of these processes that, that are going on. So how RFT really could play an important role for us in pain is that these successes and these failures that we see seem to underpin these kind of processes we might consider psychological flexibility or inflexibility. And to understand mechanisms or some of the process basis for psychological inflexibility and psychological flexibility, you have to understand relational frame theory. And relational frame theory essentially was an expansion on some of the old, some of Skinner's work, B.F. Skinner's work on operant conditioning. And one of the things that B.F. Skinner kind of introduced was verbal behavior, but he didn't have a good definition of it. And, and as a lot of these cognitive behavioral therapies kind of evolved, they kept referencing back to this, but no one sort of really studied it. RFT was basically a way to be able to understand this verbal behavior better and expand on it and really understand human language as well as cognitions at a level that's never been done before. It really is the most well-studied, most empirically based look at human language and cognition as a whole. And by understanding this framework that's introduced with the relational frame theory, it started to make sense why some of these cases that were home runs worked and why some of these cases that didn't, and also why sometimes something that looked like success would kind of fail out. One of the things that I think the quickest way for me to summarize relational frame theory is the idea that relational frames are these connections between different types of stimuli, behavior, and outputs, as well as sort of like, well, I wouldn't say outputs, but so sort of these continuously, endlessly generating of relationships that can occur. That relational frame theory technically stands for arbitrarily applicable relational responding. And it's this sort of generalized relationship that we can make between different types of kind of stimuli and, and information as a whole. When we look at that in application with our successes, what we have is that people are able to take like these additional ideas that we introduce and they're able to make a relationship and it seems to fit a little bit in their existing stories. We've open them up in a flexible state. For the people who don't do as well, they seem to have difficulty matching in this new information that we're providing because there seems to be some sort of inflexibility process that is not allowing them to match what we're adding to the picture to their existing story. And so either immediately or once they leave the clinic, they're not going to register with what we're trying to add into their story. And they're not going to be willing to make changes that could meaningfully impact their life and, and their pain experience as a whole there. So Leonard, could you give a clinical example? So, because there's so many layers there, like when you're actually in the clinic with somebody who's got pain and maybe you're presenting things that are novel and challenging their ability to do that, how do you actually integrate your understanding of that to help them change their conceptions and beliefs? Absolutely. And that's a, that's a good timing, Jeff, because I was realizing this is really dragging. <laughs> no, no, it, it, it's a great background because I think it's going to be unfamiliar to a lot of listeners. That's great. An application of this is that we know that the purpose of, of providing therapeutic neuroscience education content is to try and create behavior change. And if we have someone coming into our clinic and we're listening to their story 
And we're seeing some of these beliefs that they're essentially stuck on related to structural problems in their body that they perceive as going on. Limitations or reasons for why they would not want to participate in movement or activity, why they might limit their life. What we find is that if you try and start to challenge these notions, what you're going to run into is if your efforts to challenge it doesn't match up with their internal story, these networks and these relationships that they establish, you're going to hit a wall. They're not flexible enough. There's not enough flexibility present for us to be able to add this new knowledge. And, and that's kind of the key piece here is that we can only add knowledge to these individuals. We can't change their thoughts. We can't change their beliefs or, or, or modify their behavior. We've always been taught that with a lot of these cognitive behavioral therapies, but the reality is the only thing we can do is add new knowledge. And for them to start to shift, they have to be open to that. And that's part of our job is trying to try and open up that space for them to be able to take on this information, see their old thoughts, but also see this new thought and then weigh the two thoughts and decide, you know what, I'm looking at both of these and which of these is going to move me in towards a meaningful direction. And our job would then be to somehow find a way to open up this space where they're willing to look at both thoughts and determine what is the thought that's going to lead them into a direction. But only they can do that in that space of this kind of psychological flexibility as, as a whole there. So the tools that we use, like motivational interviewing, or whether you are using kind of these looking at the thoughts in cognitive behavioral therapy, or with ACT, you'd be using diffusion. What we're doing is we're actually sort of opening up these people to be able to look at some of the content in their mind. And instead of being stuck in those thoughts, they can kind of step back, see them for what they are, and then hopefully be able to make a little bit of a meaningful direction there. And we don't have 100% control over that situation, but if we develop some of these skills with an understanding of what's going on inside of this person, then maybe that opportunity for change could come across a little bit more smoothly. That explains a lot of, you know how when you've been doing this neuroscience education, therapeutic pain education for a while, you just get a sense of who is going to respond well to it and who's not. This is a really powerful way to see that. And it also helps to make clinical decisions, I think, because when you're looking at a patient, talking to a patient, it's not that you're going to give up on people that you don't think it's going to work well. You're just going to perhaps move yourself a little bit closer to their frame of reference. You're not going to throw them really radical new information. You're just going to try to tweak their current understanding a little tiny bit. Is that kind of how you think of it? It is similar. And that is the way that we've sort of, I feel like we've accidentally kind of fallen into this and had some success. But some of what we have to do in this process of opening up is to have them engage in this sort of experience of themselves or the experience of themselves, which is a, another kind of RFT sort of introduced concept. Our experience of ourself is sort of like two or three parts, depending on how you look at it. There's this part of us that we all have called a self as a perspective or observing self. And it's this part that's sort of like this fuzzy, hard to describe. It doesn't have a clear border because as soon as we label it, it becomes content. And it's just part of us that's sort of like the eye looking out on the world and on our sensations and on our thoughts and on our emotions. And then there's the content of the self, which is like our thoughts and our memories and our beliefs and our story. 
as well as our relationship with the processes inside of us. So our relationships with sensation, our relationships with emotions, our relationships with memories and thoughts. And so what we engage in when we, we seem to shift people is putting people into this sort of state where they're able to sort of take this observing perspective and open up to the content of their mind and be willing to shift. And so we want to kind of get away from sort of this idea of like, we want to specifically target certain thoughts, which is a very cognitive behavioral oriented perspective, more towards, okay, how do we engage this self-reflecting perspective or this perspective taking lens in which they themselves now can kind of opt to look at the information that they used to have or what you may have added to the picture once you realize it's appropriate for you to add something. And in that kind of space seems to predict the successful outcomes in both cognitive behavioral therapy, as well as acceptance commitment therapy, as well as motivational interviewing. All these different things that we're seeing from a cognitive perspective seems to take place when people are kind of stepping back, taking this perspective and opening up to some of these flexibility processes as a whole. So it's less about the content, but more about the process. Yeah, that's one of the reasons that mindfulness meditation seems to be helpful, right? And this is how I explain that to patients is that what we're doing is we're we're allowing you to become aware of what's going on in your brain. So instead of being just completely immersed in that river of internal monologue, you're stepping away from it a little bit and saying, that is an emotion, that is a thought. That's not necessarily true. That's just a thought. And then you can let it go by. This is, it seems like along those same lines. Now, getting back to the PT clinic, you had an interesting thought about why RFT why this way of looking at human language and cognition is important to understand movement, motor behavior. Can you expound on that a little bit? Absolutely. This sort of framework, which again was designed for language and for cognition, really sort of works well when we look at a simple mechanical injury. So I like to use on the posts in the past, I use, and I'm using them actually in the clinic as well, example of an ankle sprain. And when we think of an ankle sprain, our first sort of mechanistic view of it is, well, there's, a, there's an injury, maybe there's some sort of psychosocial factors, there's some context there, but we can really expand on that quite a bit further. We sort of draw out these frames or different things that may be also occurring when someone sprains their ankle. So if an athlete, let's say, is in the middle of a sporting event and they sprain their ankle, Obviously, there's a human attached to that. There's an eye, knee. So that's one relationship to that ankle injury that just occurred. There may be some tissue pieces that are involved in that process, some tissue injury that might have occurred. There might be some sensory information, nociceptive, nociceptive sensory information that may have occurred. There might be some immune endocrine things, but there's also thoughts about the ankle sprain. What kind of damage just happened to my ankle? Am I able to finish the event? What's going to happen if I let others down? Is there memories like last time I had an ankle sprain like this, I was out for like a month. There are things that happen where essentially these thoughts start to impair sensory motor and, and worsen sort of their proprioceptive abilities. It, it will cause some autogenic strength inhibition. All these things we see in the clinic where we're trying to rehab these individuals and we're thinking it's this and this kind of mechanism and this and this kind of thing. And then they're all kind of in their silos. 
it's never in a silo. There's so much going on in this person. There's all these relationships that are going on. And to some degree, if you try to target all those things individually, you go crazy. But if you can kind of engage in a process where you can kind of incorporate all these things in one, that's where I think we have a lot of potential to make some progress in the future. How much of this takes place in clinic versus how much is kind of home self-study for these folks? I mean, do you try to kind of crack that door open and then give them things to work with? Because it seems to me like as you go layers into this kind of stuff, I mean, there's some processing here that, that has to happen over time. How is that sort of structured? Yeah, that's a great question. The thing is, I'm trying to essentially, so the way we've kind of been going about this, we try to develop a framework, we call it a movement with pain framework that allows us to be able to assess what prognostic level are they at? What's the likelihood of change that's going to go on there? And we're, we're sort of using the existing literature on psychological flexibility, which you can kind of measure. And so you're trying to get those initial, like opening the door, I think it's a great analogy like you use there, in the clinic. And you want to start to pair what you give them. So when you give them an exercise or, or activity, we have to make sure that it's coherent with what you're trying to have them go through. It needs to be something that introduces some sort of flexibility. So this is, again, where the benefit of things like movement variability is so important. We can sort of pair movement variability, which is a flexibility process for like movement behavior, with a psychological flexibility-based activity where you might have someone start to think about all the layers that are tied into it and send those both home with them. But you have to really be able to sort of balance, like, where are they at right now? How willing are they to take on this information and start to run with it? And what I find is that you have to give the experience. They have to firsthand experience it, not just cognitively, but from a sensory, emotional way and the exercise or activity that you're working with them in the session so that they know what they're looking for. And then you want to try and incorporate that into their activities as they leave the clinic and so that they can continue down this process. And hopefully, again, we're phasing them up to a little bit more flexibility and willingness to, to move forward. One thing I wonder, Leonard, I've been thinking a lot about this the past, especially a couple of months with the COVID situation we have going on. This sounds to me, and correct me if I'm wrong, something that could be really amenable or, or fit well with a telehealth delivery where they come in, you get the assessment, you crack that door, if you will, but then you follow up with them for 30 minute touch points and kind of see how that process is coming along. Maybe not needing to have them with you in the clinic doing a ton of stuff. Is that way out of bounds or do you see that as being a, a viable avenue for this delivery? That's exactly what we're doing. Myself and my clinical partner, uh, David, since this is, this has been going on, I mean, we, we kind of started early March, obviously into extensively doing telehealth. We had done it before, but not to this degree. And we've now done evaluations as well as individual sessions all entirely through, through telehealth. And it really, really resonates extremely well for that profile. And I think it just, we hope at some point in time, there's going to be a way for us to safety bring people back in the clinic on a regular basis for like evaluations. But I can tell you, it doesn't even have to be, you can do it entirely through a telehealth process. We've had a number of really good progressions, individuals who came in, we were unsure how this was going to go from a telehealth perspective to kind of crack that door open. But you can produce many of these same experiences with just guided processes, the same way you would instruct an exercise or instruct a mindfulness activity or any of these things. You are delivering it, but again, you're doing this remotely now. So that's an excellent question and example because that's exactly what we're delving into right now. 
Now, Leonard, you mentioned that you can measure psychological flexibility in the clinic. And I'm wondering how you do that. And if you do that routinely, is that something that you add to your assessment? We have been playing back and forth with it. So there are actually nearly 100 different types of tools for measuring psychological flexibility. It's broader than ACT. It's broader than relational frame theory. In fact, it's sort of its own kind of area of psychology itself. And so there's, there's a large amount of tools that are available. Uh, acceptance AQ2, it's blanking from, um, from my mind right now what the, the full thing stands for, probably kind of the nicest short form that can be done. And it's, it's a way to be able to sort of take a quick intake on psychological flexibility as a whole. There are specific measures for pain as well. So there are AQ form for, actually maybe there isn't for pain. There's a couple other psychological flexibility measures for pain. But the actual reality is you can use a physical metaphor for like willingness or for how willing someone is to work with something by using simply your hand and sort of thinking like if you are looking at your own hand right now and you bring it closer to your face and you realize how that sort of blocks out the world around you, everything that's going on and what you're able to see and what you're able to participate in, as you move away, obviously more of life opens up to you. You can see more, you can engage more. That has been actually studied as a measure of psychological flexibility. You can gauge someone based on this physical kind of metaphor of like, how, where are you right now with this? How willing are you to do this? And then have them gauge it on this kind of physical metaphor. So we've dabbled with this, but we're, we're still early on. And we're actually really, really intensely trying to look at some research kind of grants for pursuing some of this in, in the future, because I do think it's going to be very valuable for us to have quick and dirty measures of this that can be subjective, but also have an objectivity to it and kind of expand that in in different ways. That's really cool. I have one more burning question for you. And that is, you mentioned an example using donuts and hats. And I feel that this is something the world needs to hear. Again, I'm stealing so much stuff from from Stephen Hayes here, which I'm sure he's, he's okay with, but I just have to say it again. But yeah, this is one he did on a TED Talk a while ago. And it's one of my simplest, dirtiest ways to explain relational frame theory. I mean, this is, if you want to lose some weight and you identify, hey, you know what? Donuts are like a big culprit for me. And that's actually pretty true because that really is for me. I I do love my donuts and gummy bears. Anyway, I love these donuts. I want to figure out a way, how do I get less of these into my day? And so I think, you know what? I'm going to change my thinking. Brilliant idea. I'm going to change my thinking. So that way I'm not going to want donuts anymore. So I'm going to look at a donut, but every time I see the donut, I'm going to think of like a stinky old beat up hat or something like that. And so I work really hard on relating this donut to this hat. And after a while, I start to almost like smell the hat when I see the donut. I start to like visualize it a bit. So I'm doing a pretty good job. I'm starting to kind of change my thinking here. So I'm pretty excited about this and I think it's going to help me. But then there's this problem. I start to look at hats. And all of a sudden I start to think about donuts. And so there's this two-way relationship. So this thing that this Diddy, as Stephen Hayes calls it, that he always likes to say to describe his 30 years of work is that you can learn things one way, but it immediately derives two ways. And then you put it into networks and that changes the thing that you do. And so you always learn things two ways and then you start to generalize it. So maybe a Dirty hat doesn't have to be the thing that brings up donut. Next time you see a normal hat, 
you think of a donut, or maybe you think of someone's head or hair, and you start to think of donuts. So this is the way the mind works, is it's always making these endless connections. And you can never sort of just change your thinking because there's always this infinite number of relational possibilities after you make that one-way relationship. Yeah, that is a perfect example of relational frame theory in action. And with something that you said in a recent blog post, that the human mind does not have a delete button. And I know I've seen, I think I've seen Stephen Hayes say that too, but it's true. The human mind doesn't have a delete button. We can try to substitute thoughts and change thoughts, which is what cognitive behavioral therapy does. But in some ways, and especially for some patients, that seems to backfire and is really not all that helpful in clinical scenarios because we cannot delete thoughts. It's like, don't think about a pink elephant, right? Exactly. Yeah. I'm thinking about it right now. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. Everybody is. Awesome. Jeff, do you have any other questions before we wrap up? No, that was perfect. That was plenty to have my mind spinning for a while. There's a lot there. And I think there's so much to be said about those associations and relationships and unpacking all of that that likely is at the at the center of so much affinity and willingness to make changes and actually stick with something. So I think there's I think we've got to get some of those books too in the show notes and make sure folks can can continue to follow up and, and dive deeper. Awesome. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much, Leonard. This is a great discussion. I understand RFT better than I have before even doing a little bit of reading about it. So perfect. And can you just, before we sign off, let people know where to find you, where to find your company and your website and any social media information, if you are comfortable sharing that email address? Absolutely. So probably easiest way to get hold of me is um, dynamicprinciples.com or leonard at dynamicprinciples.com or just through our uh, clinic website, dmrmove.com. Either way, you'll get a hold of me. So those are probably the best ways to, to reach out to me. And glad you guys are asking these questions and hopefully some thoughts to be had about this. Awesome. Well, thanks so much. Well, I really appreciate Leonard's conversation and really appreciate his willingness and what seems like an insatiable curiosity to kind of figure out what is underpinning all of this stuff. You know, everybody, doesn't matter what your discipline is, all of us in clinical practice struggle with that idea of patient pushback and a lack of psychological flexibility and really just a lack of overall long-term compliance and engagement. And if we can build deeper relationships in their mind, we can very likely make more profound change. So love these explorations and certainly appreciate all of Leonard's experience and thankful for his time on the show. Everybody, thanks for being here. Always appreciate you carving out time for us. As always, we are at evidenceinmotion.com. We will see you on the next episode of Pain Reframe. 